The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. I just want you to exercise some incredible um, imagination, particularly if you've been here the last two Sundays. I want you to pretend you've never heard of Jonah. I want you to pretend you know nothing about Jonah or his story. And with that, listen to this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on the Lord. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not be so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. What a great story. What a wonderful man is this Jonah. He gets the call from God. He only has to be told twice. Any of you who've got kids know that twice doesn't usually cut it. Three, four, five times. And not only did he respond only on the second time, he goes to Nineveh, spends a few days, and the entire city repents. The entire city repents and everyone is saved. And that's how we like our stories to be. Even more so, we want our lives to be like that. Simple, uncomplicated, and always successful. You find out what you should do, you go, you do it, and you succeed. Anyone here not want that to be their story? If you're a prophet or evangelist, God calls, you obey, and success, a whole city is saved. We like to present a good picture to those around us. We like to present a good face to the world. And maybe that is your story. Maybe your life is just good. Everything goes your way. It's almost perfect. You do all the right things at the right times and you always get the right results. Anyone here like that? But when our stories are not so simple and successful, then it's tempting to try to keep the bad decisions and the wrong choices and the consequences of those choices and decisions the tough days, the rough days. It's tempting 
to keep those parts of the story untold. And so if we were Jonah and we were writing the story of our lives, we would want to write chapter 3. And so I began thinking about the stories, our stories and how we tell them in the world, in community, and in private. And telling our stories, it's so easy to present just what I call the highlight reel. It's like a movie of my life where I cut out all the hard bits and just put all the good bits together and show that. You know, a lot of people do that. You read their biography and you think that, well, it all just flowed together for them. No struggles, no failures. No lessons learned the hard way. I just tell all the good things and of all the right choices and all the great outcomes. We like to tell our chapter three. And we prefer to stay silent on our chapters one and two. However, for most of us, there is no chapter three until we've lived chapters one and two. Chapter one is like Jonah, where we are resistant to God's call on our lives. We are running from God's call on our lives. Maybe we've not even had an encounter with God yet. Or maybe we are a Christian, we're following Jesus, but right now, in some area of my life, I'm kind of running away because God's calling me into something that's kind of uncertain and concerning and threatening and unknown. And chapter 2 is when we finally turn to him and Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And so it's chapter 2 for us is when we finally stop and sit down and spend time with God. Listening learning and being changed. If we only had chapter 3 of Jonah's story, we might see the importance of calling people to repentance. and We might be encouraged by Jonah's readiness or apparent readiness to go. And we might be encouraged and impressed by his success. However, more likely we're frustrated by our own lack of success. It's like when you see the success every time and you don't realise the, the labouring and the journey behind it, it's not necessarily encouraging. It's good to share a chapter 3 stories. However, when we share chapter 1 and 2, our stories become more real. When we realise that those who have such experiences have got a long history of learning and failure behind them before they learn to see God move in those ways. It's encouraging to see what others must go through to get to the successes in life. And it can be good to share your story even when you're stuck in chapter 1. When your story looks more like Jonah 1 or 2, sharing may be crucial to moving your story forward to chapter 3. You know, remember, if you don't remember, if you weren't here two weeks ago, in Jonah's first part of his story, he's running from God. He's heading in the complete opposite direction to which God had told him. And he's on the boat, sailing in the opposite direction. The storm comes up, and he tells part of his stories to the sailors. Go away and read the story, and you'll find 
that they pick him up and they throw him overboard and the storm settles. If Jonah hadn't shared some of his story while he was still in Jonah 1, that whole ship of sailors may have gone down in the storm. And the whole city of Nineveh may have perished because Jonah would never have got to bring the call to repentance. So sometimes it's important to share your story even when you're in the midst of chapter 1. Sometimes sharing your story helps make sense of your circumstances. Sometimes, and one of the reasons we go to counsellors, is sometimes it's in the process of sharing your story. Even as you speak it out, it begins to make some sense in your own head and in your own heart and your mind. And sometimes it's then that you begin to see the way forward. I've often had conversations with people and they've actually really said nothing back to me. But as I've talked out what I'm going through, I suddenly realise what it is that I should do next. And sometimes it's as you share your story with others that they gather around you and offer you support. Or in the case of Jonah, they throw you overboard. <laughs> you may not want to be thrown overboard, but Jonah knew what was required. If he had not told his story, if the crew had not thrown him overboard, then Jonah would not have cried out to God, the only one who could save him. You know, I have been told so often, you've just got to love one another. Now, throwing someone overboard may not seem it, but sometimes throwing someone overboard is the most loving thing you can do. At the right time, it can be the most loving thing. Confrontation is never easy. Confrontation doesn't look loving. And in my experience, those who repeatedly tell us to love one another can be strongly critical of those who confront. But confronting sin, confronting disobedience, confronting behaviours that are destructive to the individual or those around them, there is nothing more loving. When someone is stuck in their chapter one, when they're running from God, when they're investing in, in, in behaviours that are destructive, many times, unless those who know their story are prepared to pick them up and throw them overboard, unless someone loves them enough to confront their current course of action, such individuals never escape. Chapter one. Good to see our brothers from higher ground. You and many others like you, many of us, have been at that point where we've had to be confronted by someone and say, actually, this behaviour is destroying you. I'm not going to empower you in this anymore. And so sometimes love must be tough. And there are numerous examples in the New Testament, examples of people being thrown overboard. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. 
Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, the f put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So when you are assembled and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Pick him up, throw him overboard. It doesn't sound loving. But to leave someone in their destructive course of action is not loving. Then in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Again, sometimes throwing people overboard, confronting bad behaviours, bad directions, bad choices, is the most loving thing that you can do. So that may put you off telling your story. I get that. Maybe it just makes you choose more wisely who you share your story with. It may scare you from telling your story, but tell it anyway. Be honest about your struggles. You know, when we look at pastors and or people with high-profile ministries who fall, they fall because nobody has been courageous enough to pick them up and throw them overboard, to allow them to face the consequences of the decisions they're making. Or they have hidden it away and not told the struggles they're having as they run from God. People can't support you and stand with you if they don't know. But again, choose carefully who you share it to and who you share it with. Sorry, Ashley, this one's not for you. Um, when you tell your story, keep it succinct. <laughs> I love what you say, brother. Love what you say. As I said last Sunday, it takes less than three and a half minutes to read Jonah chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we don't know how long chapter 1 took to play out, but Jonah chapter 2 was three days and three nights. And there's a whole bunch of things about those three days and three nights that we have no idea. Imagine if Jonah writing the story was to give all of the detail. How big exactly was the fish? How many teeth? What did it feel like to slide into its mouth and down into its belly? What did it smell like? What else did it swallow in those three days? Was it dark? What did God say to Jonah? What did Jonah say to God? Some of those things are actually important, not the what does it smell like. We have so many questions. We have the answers that we need. You know, even in the story of Jesus, we are not told the entire story of Jesus. John says that Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for all the books that could be written. And so when the scriptures are recorded, when we share our story with others, sometimes we need to be selective about what we share. And that depends on the context. And sometimes some of the details we share, we must again 
depending on the context, be careful what we share. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. I talked about this with Marika when she was sharing a testimony. She did a fabulous job. The glory went to God. That was a good thing. I've heard people share their testimony and they go into all the details of everything they've done wrong in their lives in such a way that the enemy actually has a field day. When we are exposed to certain elements of a story, especially stories of someone else falling into destructive patterns of behaviour, it can trigger stuff in us. Some of us get triggered by different things. But we can find elements of the story, elements of the things being shared that appeal to our sinful nature. They play on our weaknesses. So be careful what you share, particularly in a public setting. And when such details are shared, and you're impacted by that, whether in a public setting or a private setting, remember Proverbs chapter 4. Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. As a pastor, over the years I have had many things shared with me, often very personal and private details. And I've lost count of how many times I've had to sit with a trusted friend and ask them to pray for me because of this very thing. Someone has shared something with me. And the very visual nature of what they shared begins to play in my mind. And this video plays over and over and over. And it becomes a potentially a trap for me. And so I turn to a trusted friend and I ask them to pray that my mind would be cleansed of the images that have been playing. And God answers that prayer. And then I ask them to hold me accountable in that area. And so include chapter 1 and 2 in your story. But look to have some chapter 3s. Life is full of chapter 1 experiences where we resist God and run from him. We willingly go our own way. But running from God and wrestling with him can be tiresome, tiring and destructive. And God invites us to choose chapter 2 experiences. To spend time with him in the deep places. Maybe not in the deep place of a, of a great fish. But we talk about the cave. The place we retreat to to spend time alone with God. In prayer, fasting, silence and solitude. But don't stay there either. See, in John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, in my name, the Father will give you. And Bill and I look at each other and go, we long for that day. But we're going to keep asking. Whatever fruitfulness looks like for you, Jesus wants you and your life to be fruitful. 
He wants you to bear fruit that will last. And he promises that whatever you ask in his name, the Father will give you. And most of us are not living in that place. And if you are living in that place, come and give me some advice. This wasn't a new idea in Deuteronomy. Moses says, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. In Psalm, Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his Lord day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. In John 10, 10, we're told that the thief, told by Jesus, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. He says, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. One translation, that you might have life abundant. Just like shalom is not just this bit, it's all of that. The abundance is not just here. God wants to have abundance in all of life. In Ephesians, Paul declares, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And in 2 Corinthians, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God wants to bless you so you can bless others. He continues, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. That's not just being generous with your righteousness. This passage is specifically talking about money. And through your generosity... will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. For if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing you to be myself, uh, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And then in Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his work within us, his power that is at work within us. Why would we be told that he was able to do immeasurably more than ask we could ask or imagine, and then be told he actually doesn't want to do that much. Why do we need to know this stuff? I'll let you in on a secret. God, I don't believe, ever called me to be rich. 
I do believe he called me to ministry. And therefore I believe that in ministry I should prosper. If God had called me to be rich, then I believe in finances I would prosper. Whatever God has called you to, he wants you to prosper in that. Not for your sake, but for the sake of the kingdom. That's one of the reasons why some of us end up in the belly of the great fish, because we're chasing it for all the wrong reasons. But God wants us to prosper. Now I am not, hear me, I am not into a prosperity gospel. But neither am I into a poverty gospel. We have sold a gospel that says if you are poor and destitute and you have nothing and you're unwell, that you're suffering for Christ and you're doing the best that God would want for you. God doesn't want that. See, a man reaps what he sows, and I think some of the reasons we reap what we reap is because we're sowing the wrong things. And so we need to spend time in the belly of the fish talking with God about what it is we're sowing and where it is we should be reaping. In the next few moments we're going to come and we're going to share in communion. In communion we remember the death of Jesus. The bread reminds us of his body broken for us. And the grape juice reminds us of his blood being poured out for us. It's easy, God. It's the body of Christ and it's the blood. When you're with someone who's passing from this world, suddenly death and suffering become far more significant. And when you imagine that this is the Son of God being nailed to a cross and dying and taking upon himself and within himself your sin and mine, taking within himself all the evil of the world. And he didn't do that so that we could have a ho-hum sort of life. So that our lives could be fruitless. It was a dark day, possibly the darkest in history, but it is a day worth remembering. From the cross, the body of Jesus would be taken down and laid in a tomb. And two weeks ago, Andy reminded us, or brought to our attention, these words from Matthew. Jesus, talking to the crowd, says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Dark days. But these were also days in which God did some of his greatest work. But the dark days are not the end of the story. They are the pathway to resurrection morning. Beyond the struggle and the surrender to God's will, beyond the death and burial of Jesus, beyond the three days in the heart of the earth, beyond all these things, we remember that God was working out his plans and purposes. One of the reasons that many of us never move into Jonah 3 is because we don't want to go into the belly of the great fish. In fact, sometimes it's because back in Genesis and Jonah 1, we're not even prepared to stop running and say, God, if this is what you want... You know, there's, there's so many prayers that Jesus taught us to pray. We all love the Lord's Prayer. But the most powerful prayer, I believe, in the Bible is the one that he prayed 
on the night before he was crucified, and he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. And so while we have, and while today we may be in a chapter 1 or a chapter 2 experience, God still calls us to chapter 3. And so as we come to take communion, let us choose, in the words of Hebrews, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What has God called you to? What has God called you to? What has God promised you? Are you in Genesis? Are you in Jonah 1? Running from that? Or has God got you in the belly of the great fish where you're having this conversation and you're wrestling and you're learning? I pray that your day will come when you will walk into your Jonah 3 experience. So let's not a, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. We do need to be there for one another in whatever chapter of life we are. When Jesus died, his death accomplished so much. May we never settle for less. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.